Hello and welcome everyone back to Two Pre-Sales and a Pod. You join us for episode number 33. Um, here today on the mics, of course, we've got Adam, Tom and Don and myself, Mark, and we are going to be talking about, as you'll have probably seen from reading the title uh, already, digital pre-sales is not after your job. Uh, and then I guess discuss, because many people think that it is. Uh, and we're looking forward to talking about various things. One is exactly that. There's a new digital pre-sales impact model framework that has appeared um, to uh, kind applause on the internet. Um, and also we're going to be looking at how um, the terms and the ideas and the concepts of digital pre-sales are fully understood by a number of people across the industry but not necessarily by all the people across the industry. And how do you get those people to understand the impact that it could be? There's a few myths we've got to debunk today, isn't there? So there's there's quite a lot of misconceptions going around about what digital pre-sales is, and, and hence the title that it's not here for your job. I think where we've probably got to start is what is digital pre-sales? Because, now, Don, I know you've had a conversation with people this week that are, you know, potentially... Um, you know, not where we want to be. So it might be good to start with that and then explore what is digital pre-sales, right? Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was talking to a company who, um, you know, everything is about the demonstration. Everything is about how personally present in the moment. And, um, you know, there's no resources around them, you know, social uh, video. And um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. By the way, we just missed something as well, which is uh, we've talked about this new model called uh, Digital Pre-Sales Impact Model. And um, could it be that one of the authors is actually on this podcast? <laughs> could it be? Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll enough. It was me. Um, but very. This, this is all part of the giving back, uh, giving back to the pre-sales community, just like we had um, on episode 25 talking about the things that we can do to better the world of pre-sales. Uh, again, this is something that uh, it was born from a problem that I had where because I'm so passionate about this space and spent a lot of time reading books about it, you know, Garin's book goes into all kinds of, kinds of concepts like buyer demand gap um, and activity gap. This is the one in which we live. But we keep talking to people and trying to persuade them that it's a great idea. But unless they're going to put the time and effort in to understand it and really, really re research it, you would need a really easy to use framework that they can understand where digitally enabled pre-sales functions can make impact throughout whichever shape of sales cycle it is. Now, where I am, we've got all sorts of different sales cycles, different sort of products. But other people will have large products and small products and global products and local products with all kinds of different buyer personas. So you have, it was really, really interesting to see that when I put together a framework that balanced on one side the buyer group perception of knowledge, so this is not how much the buyer actually knows, but how much they think they know, because, of course, that's the, where they, that's where their emotive decisions are made against how act how engaged we are actually with those customers in the first place, you ended up looking at the start of their journey going through the buyer learning zone where the person is just trying to figure out what it is that you do 
and how it will meet your requirements. So they and then they're doing this learning already on YouTube and the internet. But if they can do it through methods that you can control and be part of and help them through that journey, then that's all the more is better. And then, of course, ending at the closing zone that we all like. The buyers like it as well, because it means that they've got to the point where they have done all of the due diligence. They understand the product and the changes that they're about to make in, the, make in their, their organization. And it's a happy place for everybody. Of course, the danger zones. You get loads of people which think that they know a lot. This perception of knowledge. They think that they know it. Don't worry. You, know, you don't need to tell me anymore. Thank you. No, I've, I've got it. Well, that's fine if they like it. But if they don't like it. Well, then they can self-qualify out and sometimes accidentally because you haven't built that rapport that spent that time creating the customer engagement. But if you weigh too heavily on customer engagement, you've got the best friends. Oh, we've been working together for months, haven't we? Yeah, it's a really good relationship. But why isn't anything happening? Possibly because they're just not engaged in the right learning. Mm, because they don't like to let you down as well, Mark, do they? So those, those kind of well, buyers, I mean, they, they hate to give you people. bad news. Well, exactly. But so so that's where the, the DPIM framework came about. Um, and it has, it, it's just ended up a really good way for people to understand where you can then put qualifying demos and automated demos and serve content to different places. And it seems to work pretty well. Yeah. So, Mark, that's brilliant. Can I ask to kind of like put this in context? So uh, for a lot of companies, they imagine that the content they're putting out there is really, it's all marketing controlled. It's it's the stuff on the website and they might actually do, you know, some white papers, that kind of thing. It's all very marketing uh, controlled. Um, so, um and what they've got, the way that you access, let's say, a demonstration or you want to see something about the product is there's there's something on, uh, let's say, there's a, a button on the website and it says book a demo. And that, that's kind of like your access point. And we all know what happens next, which is you don't get a demo. What you actually get is a <laughs> business development person who's going to ask you like 30 questions, which is actually part of their early qualification. And um, so I just wanted to, you know, if that's for a lot of people, that's what you know, realities right now. What what what's different about the DPIM model? How does that differ from that? It's really interesting that you say that because yes, I mean, I've clicked on things and thought, oh, I'll download that white paper. That sounds really interesting. And then I'm faced with, please enter all of your personal information, your mother's maiden name, your pin code, and uh, your preferences of uh, of cake. You know, all the crazy things that people want want to know. All I'm trying to do is learn something. And so if we can make, make that process easier, that's great. What this does then is, is it helps the person pick the things that they want to see. But I think the most important step that people then fail to realize is that the person that you're enabling there is not your is not the person you're necessarily selling to. They're already on board with the idea of whatever it is that you're selling, because possibly they're all they've already been chatting. They are your internal stakeholder who is already friends and colleagues with the people, the other stakeholders in in their organization. So if you can find a way to enable them to go and sell their dream, 
because it might be really important to them. They might be working on this project and really need it to make a, a, a success. So then you can give them a tool that they can share with, with other people. But without a way to understand all of that that's going on, it, it's so vastly different to just sending the link to a YouTube video. Oh, yeah, yeah. So come, come back to the model that you've got, and we will put a link uh, to this. This model is a, a download because it, it's a really good kind of, what do you call it, Boston Matrix type model with the four boxes and a path that weaves its way through. So I think, you know, most would be familiar with that kind of model. Um, up on the top left and the bottom right hand side are these uh, danger zones. And I was really interested, you talked before there about one of the danger zones is this high perceived knowledge and, and low connection. Um, how do you think, how does that happen that people think they've got more knowledge than they, they actually have? Is it is it a level of arrogance or something? No, and it's important to, uh, to not misunderstand. It's not total knowledge about a product. Um, it's perhaps there's a certain level of knowledge that will give someone the comfort to take it along to the next step. And if they think that they've got there, that's great. But if they think that they've got there so soon that you've not built up a rapport, right. then it's fine if they like it. But if they think that they've made, got enough information but then they don't like it. Yeah. Um, you've got no way to ask them why or learn from it or perhaps bring, bring, bring them back. And I think so, something to add to that um, is also there's a risk internally as well. When we're moving towards this, this idea of a digital pre-sales and we can deliver all kinds of content, whether that's virtual demos, whether that's videos, I think there's always a risk that sales and marketing internally see that as a way of massively increasing the velocity of a sales cycle. And that's exactly what's taking you towards that danger zone, isn't it? Where, as, as you said, you might have stakeholders who are inundated with all this information, but they might not have the right connection. So it doesn't necessarily end up in a sale. I'm going to throw a controversial idea out here, and and please feel free to discuss. But we we often talk about you know in the in the industry and, and on this show we've spoken about how many vacancies there are, this massive surging demand for pre-sales professionals out there. So the likelihood is, if you're in a growing company and you're a a buyer, okay, in that scenario, you may well be talking to someone who is increasingly shorter in tenure or experience of either that vertical or that software or that market. Now, through no fault of that pre-sales person's own, the pressure mounts up when you join a company. Obviously, you want to contribute. You want to be an A-game player. And so it puts a lot of pressure on both the buyer, the pre-sales person, and the employer to upskill as fast as humanly possible in that scenario. What we're actually saying here, and one of the titles was, digital pre-sales is not after your job. And it's not because... If you think of scaling an organization, if you're a modern SaaS application, you're trying to scale, how are you going to scale if you don't embrace digital pre-sales? Because we look at buyer enablement, we look at enabling the sales team. That's a huge part of the modern pre-sales team going forward. I'll ask you this question. Is it possible to grow and scale without getting on board with a model such as Mark's or digital pre-sales? Can you do it the traditional way? You can, but it'll cost you an absolute fortune. Arm and a leg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. And, you know, maybe back in the day that was fine. But we're now talking about 
pre-sales being influential in more than just the live demo scenario the the place where sales people are fundamentally the, the most valuable player at that part of the sales cycle but if you have these wonderful people as as you said you know they're fully skilled up trained up they they can make the product sing you know really dive in and out weave the stories throughout it if if that person is spending all their time doing overview demos and overview demos and overview demos because that's what the customers need for a different part of the sales cycle then their skills could be used better elsewhere but what's great take take mike myers um he was he played three or four different characters in austin powers and you can be the same in pre-sales other examples are available adam is now laughing at i'm thinking what, what organization does mike myers work for I'm like scanning linkedin like who is this guy haven't you met mike myers oh great great pre-sales person no so he plays different people and this idea of a digital a digital twin that you that can go and be strategically impactful in different parts of the business that you put still put your name to if you're an expert in something don't limit yourself to the hours you have in the day suddenly become more impactful across the whole sales cycle use it for faq videos right at the closing point of the sale the person's worried about risk send them a really excellent detailed snippet very very short very to the point about exactly what they wanted Maybe they're just a generalist. They don't know what they want to look at. Give them an overview because you've done it for so long. And suddenly one person is now five people. Mm. But five people of the quality that you want, because that's the thing that you don't want to sacrifice. The thing that I think when I'm scaling the team is I don't want to sacrifice my quality. I've got a really great team. I'm not prepared to give a customer an experience that isn't up to standard. And that's my biggest worry, actually. And that's one of my big motives Um, moving towards this. Yeah, And you know what? They can do it at five o'clock in the morning and then again at half past five in the morning and then at six o'clock in the morning and then 17 times concurrently at eight o'clock in the morning. Suddenly you're providing content whenever the buyer, whenever the buyer needs it. So they might be walking the dog and they are mulling it over their mind. They can check it then. Two weeks later, they can check back to see what it was for that part of the project. Now they're doing it and they can check it again there and you get, and you get to see it. So it sounds like basically we all agree when, when we're talking about digital pre-sales, is it going to come and take your job as a pre-sales professional? Actually, I think we would all agree that actually it'll do far better. It'll make us more strategic in, in these deals where we're the ones who have seen customers implement our tools hundreds of times. We're the ones who can have really deep discovery, build relationships and properly communicate with the stakeholder rather than doing repetitive tasks like overview demos or you mentioned frequently asked question demos, um, Mark, because we can get properly deeper into the granularity of the challenges of a prospect. And that's surely where pre-sales can have the most value. Absolutely. I'd, I've got a really good example of this. A couple of years ago, I met a pre-sales person from a very large tech company that we won't name. And they told me that they do nine demos a day. And I was like, wow, okay. I said, well, what are you actually doing uh, when you do the demos? And it turned out that they're all exactly the same thing. 
it's it's a repetition and that person got really really comfortable with with that demo and the repetition of it and could replicate it all the time so i said well well how do you really feel about that i said is that what you thought you would do is that what you want to do do you think that's the best use of the skills that you've got and and hopefully everyone would answer the same thing. No, it's not. You know, I'd much rather be doing, you know, much a consultative approach. Um, and that directly feeds it. That, you know, what that person was doing, these nine times a, a day replicating exactly the same thing. No one really wants to do that. That's your digital twin can do that for you. It, it, this this kind of technology gives you gives you almost walk away points that you wouldn't have otherwise as well because if you're if you're putting content out into the world that's available to consume like Mark says any time of day the fact that it's so available in that YouTube on demand culture that everyone's got used to over the pandemic I click on Amazon it's here tomorrow but I have to wait three days four days for a demo how does how does that work that's not how people are used to the world working now they're used to Netflix where they want to watch it they click they watch right so if we if we're moving towards that it almost gives you because it's so available if you're then choosing not to consume that content that's a massive indicator you know there's all of the barriers of entry of, of getting diaries coordinated of resource of the traditional bottlenecks have moved and actually you've got to explore that and say well if the things are so available and people still are not consuming it that's a big buying indicator right there right it really is and do you remember when you wanted to have a meeting with a bunch of people and those bunch of people therefore joined in a meeting room mm. so you, you that was sort of standard you went you presented your stuff to a bunch of people in a meeting room then well, you know you started to do some over zoom some over teams um but then coronavirus hit and everyone was virtual and suddenly we've realized well if people don't necessarily need to be in the same room at the same time they don't need, they're not forced to therefore listen to the same thing in that hour. So if you've got six people and they're going to spend an hour sitting and listening and you, they all have, you know, you've got the HR person, the finance person, the project person, you know, they've all got different needs from that information transfer exercise. So sim perhaps oversimplistically, but perhaps not, if there's six people, and they've all got six different things that they need, you're wasting 50 minutes of everybody's time in that meeting. Yeah. If you could just send that 10 minutes of key information that that person needs, and they could consume it at their own, at, at their leisure again and again, and they could still ask you questions about it and have that relationship. Why wouldn't you do that? Absolutely. I'd as an example of why you would do this, I was speaking to a company this morning who were, their, their main challenge is that um, they've got these one hour slots where they need to do a demo. Then there has to be a pitch thing at the front and they've got to get the work their way through three personas, a demo for three different personas. And, and I said, they're just running out of time. There's not enough time. Even doesn't matter how fast you go to get your way through all of the, these demos. Um, these different demos that they believe that the audience need. And we were discussing it. Well, other people are starting to look at, you know, digital pre-sales that, you know, couldn't you replicate some of this as video, you know, if, if it's, did, and also did all of the audience need to know about all three personas? And it was like, well, no, that's, you know, I haven't checked because that's just what we normally do is we just go, you know, we go from A to B and we show how all the product works and that's, that's how it's done. So, um, 
you know, for them, it would be a revelation to have a, you know, a digital twin that could actually do some of that uh, asynchronously, you know, at some other time um, when people want to consume it and are interested in that persona. And this, this is feed into what I, I think is going to be, if it's not already a pre-sales metric of where you're working, I think it will be over the next few years, is cost to acquire the customer CAC. So, you know, as, as we move to a software world where you haven't got that big lump of cash coming in from those of us back in the day that used to work with initials kind of software sales, where there's a huge lump of cash, and we would put whatever cost was required to go and land that customer because that was that was the model right and you'd get that big lump of cash and then small annuals relative to the um, initial investment well as we move to saas when it's actually a 3 year 4 year agreement 2 year whatever it is and you've got that kind of recurrent it's important to control the cost to acquire that customer because that upfront cash flow isn't there so you, what you've got to do is really i think a pre-sales team needs to be very cognizant of what the cost to acquire that customer is because i think and peter cohen said didn't he Don, when he came on the show, was it? Um, what was his line? The the whole purpose of pre sales team was. Um, oh, I'm going to misquote him. Secure the customer with the least possible expense. That's it, and that's summarised. That's that summarises cost to acquire the customer as, as best as human possible. So actually, yeah. there's a there's a an opportunity here, and I'm thinking as a leader here, I'm thinking I can control that cost to acquire the customer that I can't do if I don't embrace digital first. There's just you know the costs are just going to hemorrhage, right? Just as like you're saying, pre-sales are um, are changing, and it's being going to be the cost to maintain that customer. Yes, because existing customers will be able to watch new functionality content and keep the growth and the use of the product alive. Yeah, I was going to just say that you know DPIM the model that you've you've kind of launched there one of the things we don't want people to leave with the idea is that oh well it's all digital you know as in my new job is just recording videos all the time because it isn't there's still a live demo in there there's there's still this kind of thing where there's going to be an emotional connection people people are still human there's still people you know they still want to connect with people i mean did you want to talk a little bit more about that part mark yeah so it, that that was so on the same lines as it's 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 not replacing people, it's actually increasing their strategic impact. Live demo used to be the thing, like like you say, where you had to fit in all the personas, all of the examples. It's a huge bit of, you know, you, you've got one hour to, to show us your ERP. Uh, what? Sorry? Really? <laughs> uh, no. Um, so you end up showing all sorts of things like it has a user interface. It has graphs. It's really nice to use. People get that. Everyone has that. So now your live demos can be the cool stuff, the stuff that actually matter to the customer. By then, the qualifying demo, you've already seen the things that they've clicked on and watched twice or thrice or whatever. And so your live demos are far more um, interactive, far more useful for the buyer. But they'll always exist, especially in the larger software deals. Sorry, the larger software applications. A lot of times, I think we forget a majority of markets now. You're not actually going in as a first-gen buyer anymore. I remember back when I started, around 10 years ago, I started in software. We were going to people where it was mainly spreadsheets we were potentially replacing, and it was a, a first-gen software, so there was the whole sell of the benefits of this is why you even need a system as well as why us. Actually, now it's why do I move from supplier A to supplier B when actually the products are relatively similar. So people are selling on things like customer success and more more, more the what the company can offer and the organization and as, as a technology partner as well. And I just wonder if this feels 
kind of like what we're going through as pre-sales people must be what actors went through when, you know, when TV, when video, <laughs> when things came out that made, you know, you could watch their film over and over again. You didn't need to go to the theatre anymore. We still go to the theatre. We still enjoy going to the theatre and seeing a live performance. There will always be a need for a live demo. There will always be a need for our skill set. What we're doing is making the repetitive um, accessible as much as we humanly can, aren't we, really? But I, I, I did wonder if that's a similar feeling to what maybe other professions have gone through historically, right? Yeah. I was going to say the um, the acting thing. I always You can smell the adrenaline. If you know, you know, with, with acting, with it live on the stage, you just go, "Wow!" You know, to to do this and be mostly perfect all the way through, and then you reflect on, you know, on ourselves, and hopefully for a lot of us, you know, that's one of the things we really love about it is that adrenaline rush that you get, you know, uh, convincing people, being able to influence people, kind of live look them in the eye and realize that they trust what, you, what you're saying. It's, it, you know, that's a, a huge thing to be able to do. Um, but what we're saying with the digital, you know, pre-sales model is that you, you need to do that at an appropriate time, but actually your digital twin can do all of the rest of it, the lead up to that. Um, you know, all the hard work that qualifies them and means that they've, you know, they've built a relationship with you before you've even met you. And it's, it's, it goes back to what I think it was Mark or Tom said right at the start. It's about having an appropriate strategy for the kind of opportunity you're working on. You know, if that customer does almost want to just consume some video, enter credit card details and buy, let them do that. You know, let them have the buying experience they want, but it should be appropriate for the the opportunity level. So if you know someone's trying to buy huge level ERP where the risk is massive for the organization selling as well as the customer, well, the right thing to do to safeguard them is to actually have a meeting maybe or have a demo just to safeguard both parties. Let's not you know move completely away from that. Let's just use it at the right times, right? Definitely. And and the, and the people you're selling to, the, the number of them has increased as well. And the and their geographic location and the times that they have available um they might not want to understand yeah so it's a, if it's a big erp system that person might be on holiday when the other person has a week that they could spend learning their bit so we need to get out of our ways our own way sometimes and just let let people do it their way and if we can provide automated content so they can consume it whenever they want, but still make sure that it's been created authentically. I mean, you could read that as not perfectly. It doesn't have to be a massive production of perfect video quality and audio and production. It just has to be authentic. And, and, and that's why this is not going to step on the toes of marketing who creates some slick, amazing lead gen content. Those marketing qualified leads come in and it's by people that, you know, very, very careful comms and marketing that have created that. But then people want to talk to people. And so if you're going to create digital versions of yourself, stay authentic. You know, you're, you've created a video to show something because you like being useful. You please use this whenever you want and give me a shout. I'll show you the next bit. That's fine. And it doesn't, you could just record your team's call. You know, it, it's fine. I just wanted to, just before we start this call, we were looking at some numbers that we got through the pre-sales uh, collective about um, uh, the number of opportunities that are out there for pre-sales people. And, and this is a message really for pre-sales managers, which is if you don't do something about uh, digital pre-sales, is that you, you're not going to be able to scale 
just by recruiting. So the, the numbers were quite, quite amazing. So just in EMEA, there are about 15,000 open pre-sales roles, which is frightening. Um, especially, I put the context behind that as well, as in the last year, only 2,800 pre-sales people actually entered the profession. Okay, so if you think of the delta between that, there's, you know, massive, massive demand for, you know, skilled, talented uh, pre-sales people out there. And and we can't all be fighting for the same people that, you know, you have to find a way of scaling your team, perhaps without having access to the headcount. Well, I think people's CVs are going to start not just showing what they what they can do in the time that they're given but what they can enable. Yep. So if I was writing a CV, I would say, well, I am, I'm me, but as a hiring manager, you're hiring one person. If they're a digital pre-sales enabled pre-sales person, you're hiring maybe 1.5 people for the price of one. I've not thought Absolutely. of it that way. Very good. So that's we're my kind of drawing insight to a- for the day. <laughs> There you go. We're stepping on the actionable insights here, Mark. So we're kind of drawing to a close. So we like this actionable insights. We've had a lot of feedback on people who like this. So let's kind of do around Robin. What's what's kind of your takeaway from today's show? What what are we encouraging people to do? Who should we pick on for the word? Tom, what do you reckon? God, I think well, with Mark's brilliant model here, um, that really shows how we can implement um digital pre-sales in an organization i think this is the perfect tool to communicate that with your internal stakeholders because often as pre-sales we know how to sell to a prospect but we don't necessarily know how to sell an idea internally to make a change to make this movement towards digital pre-sales so yeah well done mark on this really really good model i'm sure it's going to help plenty of organizations out there I was going to say another thing we haven't even talked about about uh, Mark's model is that you know it it also articulates where where is the role of the SDR, you know the um, uh, business developer. Where's the role of the account exec? How does that all actually fit into what we've talking about? So you know Mark's actually done that as well. So you know big round of applause to Mark. Huge round of applause. I, I would say my takeaway is going to be basically read, read this article, but also then start to map it to where you're at in your organization. So if you're not a leader, that's okay. You can still do this. Look at your own personal demo story or script or however you want to do it, what takes you through multiple meetings on and off. Maybe take one of your recent ones and, and look at it and go, could I have served that customer or my organization better if there were bits in my job that's replay, and you can do this on repeat, you know, you don't need all of the tools that we talk about. You can use things like lockdown YouTube channels. You can use Vimeo. You can use platforms if you haven't got the luxury of some of the tools that we're lucky enough to have. Um, you can embrace this world, you know, in a cost-effective manner and maybe look and say, well, how do I do that? And I would advocate actually extending the model, I think, what, what you just said there. So Mark's model covers that sales cycle, actually. How do we kind of jettison someone into the customer success organization or into projects or make that kind of repeatable as well. And can you add value to your org by extending Mark's model for where you're at? But I think it's, I mean, I've read it. You've seen my personal link. I think it's superb. I think you've done a great job, Mark. And I know you wouldn't say this yourself, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. So. Well, that's very kind. I think my final words on it would be um, that the image at the top of the, DPIM page on my website is of someone playing chess on an iPad. And I think that's really indicative that for so long, the game has been set 
in one way. And now pre-sales is changing in such a way that there are opportunities opening up to both companies to do to make these changes, but also individuals to increase their strategic value across whole new places. And um, I wish everyone a massive success with it. And it's a PDF download. So you can just click on it and fill it in yourself. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link on the podcast um, LinkedIn feed if you're there. And, and please do give that page a follow and share it with people that you're, you know, your connections in, in your business. We're gaining quite a traction, quite a following. And like I said, the whole purpose of this is is to give back. Um, so the more people that listen, the more we can we can help and have an impact. But thank you so much for listening. And we're at 33 shows now. Before we know it, we'll be at 50. So um, again, if you'd like to come on the show, reach out to any of us. Um, if you want to reach out to Mark, please do. Just volunteered Mark for a load of work there. So congratulations, Mark. Um, but with that, we will say have an amazing weekend. Have a great week. And we will see you next time. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.